Welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. Last episode, things really started heating up in the Low Countries, with rioting across the region, the arrival of the Duke of Alba, the exile of William, and the imprisonment of Egmont and Horn. This episode, William tries to fight back, doesn't really get anywhere, but manages to find help and hope anyway. If you're enjoying this series, please go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. It's really the best way there is to spread the word. Maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. Comments or questions can be directed there, or send me an email at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com, or find me on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot. This is episode 2.8, The Dutch Revolt Part 3. William Beggs and the Beggar's Answer. And this is The Almost Forgotten. Last time... We saw King Philip rebuff any attempts by the Dutch to reduce the severity of the Inquisition, and they eventually turned on any nobility who had anything but complete blind loyalty, even if they were true allies of the crown. Philip had brought in the leading Spanish general of the age, the Duke of Alba, who imprisoned Lamoral Egmont and Count Horn, giving everyone notice that nobody was safe. And he instituted the Blood Council, giving everyone proof that nobody was safe. William had fled the Low Countries, realizing just in time he was in great danger. Egmont and Horn, in late 1567 and early 1568, appealed to their rights to trial by fellow Knights of the Golden Fleece. As a leader of Brabant, Egmont should have been protected as well by that agreement known as the Joyous Entry. Horn should have been able to be tried by his peers in the Holy Roman Empire, as he was a count there. Emperor Maximilian wrote to Philip on behalf of Horn to ask for such a trial. None of it made a difference. Alba had Viglius, that jurist who was still on the council, find some loophole that contented them enough to circumvent the issues with the Knights of the Golden Fleece. This was important because the order was considered the height of chivalry, and Philip was a member. The rest of the issues, they just ignored. What were the Dutch constitutions at this point? And the Habsburg Emperor of Germany was hardly going to war with the Habsburg King of Spain over this. Some things that were brought up in the show trial were true. They had begged the king to remove Cardinal Granville after all. And they did give some concessions to mobs of Calvinists and Lutherans in order to quiet rioting in cities down. But mostly, the accusations were gross exaggerations or outright lies. Even a member of Alba's blood council told the Spanish duke that the trial was a sham and that Egmont deserved to be rewarded, not punished, for all of his service to the country and the king. Meanwhile, with his son kidnapped, his friends imprisoned, his enemies unable to reach him, and the citizens that until recently he had sworn to protect, all condemned to die, William realized it was time to finally move from concerned moderate to full-time revolutionary. He published a paper in response to the acts condemning him in order to lay out his case. 
He first went through the formalities of why he wouldn't submit to the tribunal and how the king's representatives had broken their agreements with the Low Countries. This was theater and politics. But he was trying to drum up support from Spain's rivals for his cause. William didn't just write, though. He also acted. He started meeting with German princes and burghers, trying to raise funds for an army. He commissioned his brother Louis as a commander in his service. The document actually stated that Count Louis should raise troops to help Philip out by fighting against Philip's forces. Still using that language that he was doing what was best for the king and fighting his representatives, he came up with a plan to free the Netherlands. He also commissioned Hoogstraten and others as his officers. He and his fellow rebels sold what they could to raise money. He mortgaged property and otherwise opened himself up to financial ruin in order to free his adopted country. The revolution, in the process of being violently crushed inside the Low Countries, was now being kept alive outside of them. William sent his small armies of mostly mercenaries out to attack from different directions and rendezvous in the Netherlands so that they could launch a final assault together. But one force was quickly defeated. Less than 2,000 of 2,500 men escaped. The rest were killed in battle or captured, then killed. Another small force had no better luck. But Count Louis of Nassau succeeded. He entered Friesland, the northern Netherlands, and took the keep at the town of Vede. He began gathering troops, and peasants flocked to his banners. The Spanish marched out a professional army of about 4,000 soldiers to meet them. The Spanish army was split under two commanders, with the bulk of them under the Duke of Arenberg, who also happened to be the stadholder of Friesland where they were fighting, waiting to link up with his partner. But his soldiers, after a few minor skirmishes, saw that the relatively untrained men fighting for Louis were quick to turn and flee. They convinced Arenberg to launch an all-out attack, rather than wait for the second Spanish army. On May 23rd, they moved forward to the rebel position. After a few muskets were fired, the rebels began to flee. The Spaniards chased after them across the open field, which turned out to be a muddy bog. The rebel forces, which had feigned a retreat, then turned around and began firing. The pikemen rushed in to attack the men trying to crawl out of the mud. The day clearly lost, Arenberg charged at the head of his small cavalry force to die with honor. But in doing so, he killed Adolphus of Nassau, a younger brother of William the Silent and Louis. This Battle of Heligerlee, the first victory for the Dutch, did little good for the resistance other than perhaps prove the Spanish could actually be beaten. William's brother Adolphus was dead. And within a few days, Alba heard the news. He was enraged at losing 2,000 Spanish troops. First thing he did was execute 18 leading citizens in Brussels that were imprisoned and stuck their heads on pikes. About a week later, he turned to his most famous prisoners. In June, Egmont and Horn were finally condemned to execution by Alba for high treason. The Bishop of Ypres was sent to comfort them, and he begged for at least a delay, which was rebuffed by Alba. Egmont wrote a letter to the king, saying he never did a thing that wasn't in Philip's interest, but begged for forgiveness nonetheless. 
The two men were executed on the 5th of June, 1568, in the Grand Square of Brussels. Egmont prayed for the king's long life and then prayed for himself before putting his head on the block for the sword strike. After his death, Horn was marched out and executed as well. From John Lothrop Motley, quote, Egmont is a great historical figure, but he was certainly not a great man. His execution remains an enduring monument, not only of Philip's cruelty and perfidy, but of his dullness. The king had everything to hope from Egmont and nothing to fear. Granville knew the man well, and almost to the last, could not believe in the possibility of so unparalleled a blunder as that which was to make a victim, a martyr, and a popular idol out of a personage brave indeed, but incredibly vacillating and inordinately vain, who, by a little management, might have been converted into a most useful instrument for the royal purposes, unquote. Egmont, being the hero of the Spanish War with France and a devout Catholic who had shown he was willing to violently suppress the Reformation, had been executed. Everyone knew now that nobody, not a single person in the Netherlands other than the Duke of Alba, was safe. Alba's next step was to take command of the Spanish forces himself. Count Louis had no money to raise more forces and his German mercenaries weren't nearly as interested in fighting for free as his peasant volunteers were. His army swelled with people who couldn't really fight, while those who could were becoming restless for lack of plunder. With two of the three invasion forces beaten easily, Alba was able to take the full might of the Spanish forces north to deal with Louis. The armies were evenly sized, but not evenly matched. In East Frisia, they faced each other down. Alba, a brilliant general, was happy to delay against this volunteer force. He encouraged skirmishes. The mercenaries began demanding gold, and Louis began wondering if he could hold his army together. Instead of camping in a village that had a protectable bridge to retreat to Germany and possibly holding out a bit more, this would have been good because William had a force in Strasbourg at the time that was ready to pounce. Lewis made a mistake by going to the small town of Jemingen. On the banks of the River Ems in a tidal flood area, Lewis's army camped on a peninsula. Trenches in the front protected him, but it was a poor spot to choose. There was no escape in any direction. Now, if he had a real army, men who were willing to fight, having their backs against the river might have encouraged them to be even tougher. But this was not a hardened group of professional Dutch soldiers. Attacked by the full force, they didn't stand a chance. His men just panicked. Lewis had to run to the cannons to fire them himself. Everyone turned to run into the river and just threw down their weapons. Once all was lost, Lewis too pulled off his armor and escaped across the river. He and a few troops made it to Germany, but 7,000 rebels were killed. The nearby city was sacked regardless of the fact that it wasn't really part of the rebellion and it wasn't actually being defended. Alba then went back to Brussels to reconvene the Blood Council and execute more folks. William, meanwhile, was encouraged by everyone to wait for the time being. He didn't lead his army from Strasbourg into the Netherlands immediately. In May, the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian formally requested that he desist from trying to attack the lands of his good cousin King Philip. 
Launching invasion of the Netherlands from imperial lands wasn't exactly good for him politically. Despite some conflict and disagreement, he didn't want to start a war between the two Habsburg empires. William responded that King Philip would have never wanted Alba to behave the way he did, and he was going to set things right. It was around this time he probably converted from Catholicism to Calvinism, although not publicly. He began to write more of the need for religious liberty for all. This made him unique even among Calvinists, many of whom were perfectly willing to persecute Catholics and other Christian sects. He continued to try to raise funds and levy troops despite the setbacks. He formally declared war, not against Spain or Philip, just against Alba. It was not a revolution he was heading, at least not according to William. It was an attempt to restore the rights granted in the provinces for centuries and agreed to by the king. But again, this was theater. He was leading a revolt and needed to do a political dance to keep alive any chance of Allied help. He issued a decree stating his loyalty to His Majesty Philip, who was surely misinformed by nefarious schemers of the situation in the Netherlands. Quote, Cheerfully inclined to wager our life and all our worldly wealth on the cause we have now, God be thanked, an excellent army of cavalry, infantry, and artillery, raised all at our own expense. We summon all loyal subjects of the Netherlands to come help us. Only when Alba's bloodthirstiness shall have been at last overpowered can the provinces hope to recover their pure administration of justice and a prosperous condition for their commonwealth, unquote. Dutch merchants sent money, but not nearly enough to really support his army. With little money and many mercenaries, time was as much his enemy as Alba. Okay, Alba was worse, but you get the picture. William and his army of 30,000 crossed the Meuse, a major river in the southeastern Netherlands that eventually winds its way to the North Sea. He used cavalry to slow down the flow of the river upstream so his infantry could cross with ease. If you listen to the episodes on the Diatoche, Perdiccas attempted to do this with elephants in Egypt but they kicked up so much silt in the Nile that the river actually became deeper. Take note, horses, a better option to slightly dam up a river if you're ever in a similar bind. The crossing was a brilliant enough move that Alba didn't actually believe William was outside of Brabant ready to pounce. The prince camped his forces near the duke and prepared for a battle to determine the fate of the Netherlands. But the battle never came. Alba was able to avoid a pitch battle. Why would he fight against the rebels' last hope? Sure, if he won, the rebellion might be crushed, or it might pop up again. But if he lost, they'd spring up everywhere, and they could have taken Antwerp or Brussels before reinforcements came. If they never fought, perhaps nobody would spring up throughout the country to aid this one army, even though William was at the head. Besides, Alba was outnumbered by William and they were in land favorable to the only thing William had that was superior, his cavalry. Alba showed his own strategic and tactical brilliance over the next month. William trudged through Brabant, but was unable to engage Alba in a head-on battle. The only real action was a loss for William. He left Count Hoogstraten in charge of a rear guard as he crossed a river, trying to tempt the enemy to attack the main force. Alba detached a sizable force to attack this rear guard 
and ended up destroying most of it, close to 3,000 of them. Those that were captured were soon hanged. Hoogstraten, William's longtime ally, was wounded and died soon after. It was a tough loss, but the battle was not a strategic disaster. His army still outnumbered Alba's, and French Huguenot reinforcements soon arrived. Unfortunately, so did Winter, and he had to leave the territory or risk losing most of his mercenary army. By November, he was in France, and he made it back to Strasbourg by December of 1568, disbanded his army, and sold everything he could to pay them. 1568 ended miserably for the Allies. The Spanish were in control of the whole of the Netherlands and had defeated two major armies, one soundly in combat, the other by waiting them out. Alba, for his part, decided the next thing to do, besides of course continuing the blood council, was to build a giant statue of himself and put it in Antwerp. He was also presented with a jewel-encrusted sword as a gift from the Pope, who was very excited about all the heretics that had been murdered. In one sense, the revolution was over, it had been crushed, and there was nobody inside the Low Countries to lead it. If you think of the Eighty Years' War as a series of conflicts more than one sustained conflict, then the first phase of the Dutch Revolt had sort of just ended with a decisive victory for the Spanish. But with his victory, Alba did the one thing that would anger even the most conservative of his Dutch allies. He proposed to the king that he would help fund Spain's military presence by increasing the tax burden on the Low Countries. In March of 1569, he convened the States General to propose several taxes, including a new property tax, a new real estate tax, and a new sales tax. These taxes, a large amount to be imposed on the country that had just seen significant reduction in trade and was still experiencing executions faster than they could count the bodies, was too much to bear. The loyal Viglius even protested. What Alba didn't understand is that the taxes wouldn't hurt the rich nobles who were sure to lend support no matter what. Sure, the poor would be hurt, but when aren't they? The biggest burden would be on the middle-class burghers, the very ones who made the Netherlands the biggest contributor to the Spanish king's revenues. They tried to resist, negotiate, beg, and plead for relief, but Alba offered none. The city of Utrecht was obstinate and refused to pay. Alba hauled the city leaders in before the blood council and pronounced all of their ancient liberties unilaterally revoked. Edmondson wrote, quote, With Alba and his master, all restrictions upon the absolute authority of the sovereign were obstacles to be swept remorselessly out of the way. Civil and religious liberty, in their eyes, deserved no better fate than to be suppressed by force, unquote. Now, Philip was never an enthusiastic supporter of the taxes. He was a shrewd enough politician to understand the potential for a major disruption of trade. Despite this, Alba was allowed to continue, although Philip never gave him enough money to really enforce it, so on taxes, he had to compromise somewhat. William, meanwhile, spent much of 1569 in Germany and in France, helping fight for the Huguenots in the civil war there, known as the Wars of Religion along with his brother Louis and their youngest brother, Henry. William commanded troops for a time, but ended up spending more time running around Germany trying to raise money and troops. William also commissioned privateers to harass Spanish shipping, and these experienced Dutch sailors from Holland and Zeeland were only slightly better than pirates. 
But the sea beggars, as they were known, referring to the nickname the Compromise of Nobles adopted, were the only real resistance to the Spanish at the time. And so William supported them and tried his best to fund them. He also sent word to any towns he could that their help was needed, and he was still with them. They sent him money, and he funded more sea beggars, as well as his aspirations for using some of the French soldiers he was hanging with. In July of 1570, in Antwerp, Alba, trying to appear magnanimous, announced a pardon. It stated that all previous sins of all the citizens of the Netherlands could be forgiven. But it was so littered with exceptions, so filled with loopholes, that would allow Alba to kill anyone who came forward anyway, that it was simply shrugged off as another offense from Spain. Now, in the third year of Alba's term as governor-general, nobody was stupid enough to bring themselves before the duke. As people complained about it, even Viglius muttered it wasn't exactly very forgiving. Alba also continued passing judgment through his blood council. He condemned Flores de Montmorency, the Count of Horn's brother who had gone on that mission to Madrid, to death in absentia. John IV of Glimes had died in Spain, thanks to his injuries he sustained on the way. But Flores was kept in the Spanish court for several years under a sort of house arrest. An escape attempt was almost made, but it was discovered at the last minute and he was imprisoned. In October of 1570, he was strangled in secret as Philip didn't want another public execution. Philip maintained, for at least a little while, that Flores died of disease. Around this time, William separated from his second wife, Anna of Saxony. The histories say she was a nut job and she had all kinds of affairs, but who knows, William was the beneficiary of some pretty positive PR in most of them. She was, however, committed to an asylum and died, supposedly mad, by 1577. As 1570 turned to 1571, things were looking pretty bleak for William. Some of his most important allies, who were also his friends, Horn, Egmont, Hoogstraten, and William's little brother Adolphus, were dead. His second marriage had ended. He was broke, and his military campaigns in the Netherlands had been repulsed. All William had done so far seemed to be for naught. Ah, but the Spanish obstinance would prove to be an incurable condition. Some of those taxes that Alba had instituted were due to expire in early 1571. He wanted to renew them, but nobody in the Netherlands could understand why the two years of stripping them of their incomes hadn't been enough. He announced in July that the taxes, known as the Tenth Penny, would be renewed, this time without even pretending to consult the Estates General, and the people erupted in defiance, at least whatever they could do without immediately being rounded up and executed. Merchants decided to close their shops rather than pay anymore. In September, Alba said the king had demanded the tax collection, not him, and everyone should cut him some slack and just pay up. But by this point, Alba didn't actually have much support from Spain anymore. Being 60, very successful, and very haughty, he had angered enough of the inner circle of Philip's advisors over the years that some were always going to be conspiring against him. Also, people were starting to realize just how brutal his reign was. In early 1572, the Spanish ambassador to France traveled to Brussels. He interviewed the Duke and others, and reported back to Philip his take on the situation there. 
he wrote that the duke was universally hated by all, and that he must be relieved of duty. But Philip was not one to act quickly and decisively on pretty much anything. Meanwhile, Alba's insistence on the renewed tax had met with enough resistance that commerce really had come to a standstill. Nothing in Brussels was open. At the time, the sales tax was paid by the seller rather than the buyer, so the sellers all just stopped selling. Frustrated to no end, Alba finally decided that the simple solution was to hang a few of the city's leading merchants and watch the rest fall in line. He woke up Viglius in the middle of the night to draft warrants for their arrest when he received news from Brilla, a harbor town in South Holland. A group of sea beggars, led by William Vandermark, Lord of Lumi, had been kicked out of a port in England. Although the English appreciated their work against the Spanish, it was politically inconvenient at that particular time to allow them to stay. So, in an effort to placate Philip and avoid direct war, Queen Elizabeth kicked the sea beggars out of England. They sailed towards North Holland to try and capture some loot and some food. Then they sailed south to Zeeland before making it to the Meuse River. Outside of the town of Brilla, starving, they encountered a single fisherman sympathetic to their cause. He returned to his town and greatly exaggerated the number of sea beggars, convincing the small royalist garrison to flee. The sea beggars split into two groups and attacked the few remaining defenders, but there wasn't much of a battle. They quickly took the town, in one of the first real victories for Dutch independence. William was meticulously planning a new invasion, and the trading cities in Holland, who were quieter during the earliest parts of the revolt, were obstinate over the tenth penny tax. But nothing had coalesced. All of a sudden, the Spanish suffered a small but surprising defeat. Edmondson wrote, quote, On April 1st, 1572, the prince's flag was hoisted over Brilla, and the foundation stone was laid on the future of the Dutch Republic. Unquote. Whether anyone knew it at the time or not, the revolution had restarted, and it would never really stop again. When he heard about it, Alba ordered that it be recaptured immediately. As Spanish troops approached the city, the relatively small group of sea beggars received instructions to surrender. Greatly outnumbered, they were saved when one carpenter from Brilla swam down the river and cut open a sluice with his axe. A sluice is basically a door on a waterway's retaining wall. The sea immediately flooded the northern approach to the city. Get used to the Dutch using the water as a weapon. The Spanish then tried to attack from the south by traversing one of the dikes. Dikes are what we in America call a levee, a solid seawall. But this bunched them together, so the defenders were able to concentrate cannon fire on them. At the same time, a few sea beggars went out to the Spanish boats and lit them on fire before setting them adrift. This all caused a panic among the attackers. Some fell into the water and drowned, but most got onto their remaining boats and retreated safely. William was certainly happy for the news, but his brother Louis immediately realized the implications. He wrote to them that Vlissingen, a big trading center on the mouth of the Scheldt, the river on which Antwerp sits, needed to be taken immediately before Alba could reinforce it. Soon, the townspeople there forced their small Spanish garrison out, and that city was then reinforced with 200 sea beggars from Brilla. Not long after that, 
a more professional officer loyal to William arrived by sea and was given command of the sea beggars. He also brought some French infantry with him, and English volunteers soon joined them. Soon, other cities in Holland and Zealand began to rise up, realizing that being on the water gave them some advantages against the Spanish. Other towns followed suit. Vlissingen, known as Flushing in English, was a true seaport, and William could now easily access the provinces of Zealand and Holland. The Dutch couldn't touch the Spanish on land, but they could still hold their own at sea. Ankhausen, a major city in North Holland, declared for the Prince of Orange. It held a large arsenal and was in a strategic location on the Zyder Zee, a large inland bay off the North Sea, which split Holland from Friesland. It was contagious, and within a few months, almost all of Holland and Zealand had come over. For all the planning, mercenaries, invasions, and impending invasions by William, the revolution was still nearly dead but for two things. William's funding of about 30 pirate ships of sea beggars, and the tenth penny tax on a region made up of nothing but sea merchants and fishermen. The cities elected magistrates who took oaths of loyalty to William and to the King of Spain, and swore to fight Alba, the Inquisition, and those dang taxes. The prince, still in Germany, couldn't directly participate in the new uprising, but he was a symbol that they could latch onto and use. And he was also more than a symbol. He was a real person, very highly ranked in the world of European nobility, and now he could easily communicate with the region, so he was able to begin directing affairs. Then, in May, more good news came. In the county of Haino, in Wallonia, not far from the French border, Louis of Nassau had an ally sneak into the city of Mons and distribute firearms to partisans there. William's negotiations with and time spent in France paid off because Louis was able to show up with a force of 1,500 mostly French troops outside of the city, far enough away that they weren't detected. He sent in a few men who pretended they were wealthy wine merchants who wanted to know when the gates would open so they could bring in their products. They bribed a gatekeeper to come a little early and attacked him when he opened the gate. A few dozen horsemen entered the city, and Lewis rushed out to the forest to get his troops in order to lead them. They were able to take the city, and soon more French soldiers arrived as reinforcements. Mons, the capital of Haino, was a key to the southern Netherlands. Alba, suddenly attacked on two fronts out of the blue, believed Mons was the most important target. Being on dry land, it was certainly the easier one. Meanwhile, he sent a notice to the cities of the county of Holland, convening the estates, and promising to end the taxes if they just calmed down, walked back the whole revolt thing, and supplied him with badly needed cash immediately. You have to understand, Alba had crushed the rebellion. People had fled or gave up. It was done. But then the tenth penny couldn't be collected, because without a full organized bureaucracy, nobody was able to collect from these obstinate merchants. So he had to ask the estates general, but they balked. Alba had ended the revolution, but William, the sea beggars, and Alba himself had brought it back in. At this point, it was too late. At Alba's suggestion, Holland's leadership did meet in July, but not with Alba. According to Herbert Rowan in his article, Dutch Revolt, What Kind of Revolution? Quote, Alba convoked the states of Holland, not the estates general, 
to a session at The Hague on 15 July. Dortrecht, the senior city in Holland, called the members to meet instead in their town to consider measures in the new situation. This was a revolutionary innovation, because the states had always before been convened by the Count of Holland, still incontrovertibly Philip of Spain, or by his stadtholder. But who was the stadtholder? Orange had sent his resignation to Margaret of Parma when he went into exile in 1567, and it had been tacitly accepted when Alba named the Count of Bossu in his place. Nevertheless, the assembled delegates, denying the legality of Bossu's appointment without their participation, at once recognized Orange as the king's stadtholder, unquote. So, the leadership of Holland met in Dortrecht and declared for William, for Philip, and against the Duke of Alba. The Prince of Orange was recognized as the official stadtholder of Holland once again, in the name of Philip, of course, and of course, only by the rebels. William, though, was in Germany with an army, but with no money to pay them. He asked his friend and ally, Philips of Marnix, the Lord of St. Aldegon, to speak for him. It was a good choice. Marnix was a great writer and an eloquent speaker, and he convinced the states to send William more money. But Alba did not take this political defeat lying down. According to Geoffrey Parker, in his book The Army of Flanders in the Spanish Road, 1567-1659, to Quote, between 1 April and 31 August 1572, the Duke of Alba increased the forces at his disposal from the permanent nucleus of 13,000 men to 67,000 in response to this new emergency, unquote. He had to turn a small border guard into a force ready to wage war, and he did this mostly by augmenting that permanent nucleus, which was mostly Spanish, although there was quite a few Italian troops with troops from the Netherlands and German mercenaries. Back in the county of Haino, Alba's son Don Frederic had taken a force to lay siege to Mons. Louis knew he couldn't hold it against a full onslaught of Spanish troops, but he had been promised relief from a larger French force. The French commander, rather than go link up with William's army, as Louis suggested he do first, went straight for Mons and his forces were demolished outside of the city. William, meanwhile, entered the territory with his forces and took the town of Roermond, where one of those two debacles to start the three-pronged invasion back in 1568 occurred. This time the defense was less stout, although the prince ended up being delayed there as he tried yet again to gather enough money to keep his mercenaries from leaving. In early August, Gaspard de Coligny, a French Huguenot leader and one of the French king's closest advisors sent William word that he would soon be leading a larger French invasion force to help free the Netherlands from Spanish control. William and Louis had been working on this for years, and in the ebb and flow of the French wars of religion, during this lull, the Huguenots finally convinced their Catholic king to bring his forces to bear against his real enemy, Spain. Soon after, William was able to get enough money from the cities in Holland to get his troops to march. He marched through the southern Netherlands, and towns and cities came over to his side, including the old capital of Mechelen. But just as it seemed the most promising, the situation in France again changed drastically. Henry, a direct descendant of Hugh Capet and leader of the House of Bourbon, a cadet branch of the ruling Capetian dynasty, was the King of Navarre, a small Basque territory in the Pyrenees between France and Spain. 
He was also a Huguenot and had just married the French King Charles IX's sister as a way to bring peace between the rival factions. But Charles, always indecisive and prone to being pushed around by his mother Catherine de Medici, upended this alliance by agreeing to a plan by his Catholic advisors to brutally consolidate their power. Hundreds of the leading Huguenot nobles were in Paris to attend the wedding on August 18, 1572. About a week later, on the 24th, St. Bartholomew's Day, in an event that makes the Red Wedding look like a middle school dance, Charles allowed a massacre of all the Huguenots they could find. Henry barely escaped, but in France, tens of thousands of French Huguenots were murdered. It was a punch to the gut, as William learned of the massacre. Besides the murder of so many Calvinists, it was also a major blow to his plans in the Netherlands. He could no longer expect any help from France. William was resolute, and he marched his army on, trying to engage with Alba's forces. Alba, though, as before, outmaneuvered William, avoiding an engagement which was much more important for Orange than it was for him. William was, however, surprised by Don Fadrique's forces. In a daring night raid, a few hundred men killed some guards, snuck into his camp, and actually made it to his tent before William's dog started barking. Several of his close advisors were killed, but William was saved by a very good dog and was able to get on his horse and flee to safety. Despite his escape, he had no money to take his now nearly mutinous soldiers any further, so he disbanded his army. The cities that had gone over to his side quickly changed their minds and turned to Alba like, What do you mean? Nah, we were never friends with William. Loyal Spaniards the whole time, us. William headed to Holland, which was still in open rebellion, and he wrote his apologies to Louis for being unable to relieve Mons, and that he was going to live and probably die in Holland in the rebellion. His famous line to his brother was, There I will take my sepulcher. Lewis was no fool. A good commander, he was willing to surrender if possible rather than waste lives on a lost cause. He was gravely ill with fever when Alba arrived. The city was too important to the economy and too tightly held for the governor general to wait for the siege to conclude. Alba offered generous terms. Lewis probably gladly accepted them. In September, Lewis and his troops and their weapons and property were allowed to leave with an honorable capitulation. Before the end of the year, of course, the executions began in Mons for anyone who had stayed behind and helped the rebels. This is Alba we're talking about. The other towns that supported William were spared, all except Mechelen. When approached and told to surrender, some idiot fired a cannon at the Spanish. But the garrison, insanely outnumbered, fled. The next day, the citizens all came out to surrender. But it was too late, and Alba's troops were behind on pay so he let them sack the defenseless city. Three days of plunder looted the city, and churches and monasteries were no exception. Three days of rape, murder, and pillage under the watchful eye of Alba helped bring the other cities of Brabant and Flanders in line without resistance. By the end of 1572, William's plan in the southern Netherlands, which had seen some initial successes, was all undone. But the Prince of Orange had made his way to Holland, which, along with the smaller maritime province of Zeeland, had cities still holding out for him. That was it. There were no other areas in open rebellion, although at least William was in the right place. 
Don Fadrik, Alba's son, also came to Holland, specifically to Amsterdam, now the only city in the entire province that remained loyal. Amsterdam sat on the edge of solid ground, sort of the last station before you got into Holland's cities on the water. Of course, it was a maritime city itself, located on the southwest corner of the Zuider Zee. To its west lay Harlem, to Harlem's west, the North Sea. If Fadrik could take back Harlem, even though it wouldn't be easy to recapture the waterborne cities, he'd be cutting North and South Holland in two. It would make continued resistance much more difficult, and the Spanish might be able to take Zeeland and South Holland without too much more of a fight. On his way to Amsterdam, he took the town of Narden, not far to the east. The city surrendered after a short siege. The Spanish came in, and then proceeded to massacre almost every living being in the small city. Narden essentially ceased to be for a few years. It is said that only 60 people survived. Alba proudly reported to his king that, quote, not a mother's son escaped, unquote. The Spanish were trying to use Narden as an example of the futility of resistance. They said they would massacre anyone that stood in their way. But the Hollanders already had declared for William. If they went back now, would they be spared? Or would the Spaniards kill the heretics once they entered the city? Who's going to be willing to take that chance? It turned out, not many. According to historian and expert on the Dutch Republic, Jeffrey Parker, quote, For the sea beggars, the Calvinists, and the other exiles who returned to Holland and Zealand in 1572, there could be no surrender. They, like the Prince of Orange, had decided to make Holland their tomb, either in victory or defeat, unquote. As Don Fadrique approached Amsterdam late in 1572, he ordered a group of rebel ships that had been frozen up in the harbor near the city to be seized. But as the troops approached, the Hollanders sent out musketeers on skates, and they quickly routed the Spanish forces. Yes, their Olympic speed skating dominance actually does have some historic roots. Also, this was what some scientists believe was during the start of the coldest part of the Little Ice Age. But right after this battle, the ice broke up, and the rebel ships escaped to Enkhuizen, that major harbor town further north in Holland, sitting on the Zuider Zee. In December, Fadrique took a force, which eventually numbered 20,000 or more with reinforcements, the 10 miles west or so from Amsterdam to Harlem. This was close to the number of people inside the walls of Harlem, not the soldiers, but the total population. As the siege began, Fadrique took his artillery out and pounded the walls of the city for three straight days, softening up the opposition before ordering the assault. This was not, however, the quick work of some of the other cities. Despite their lack of trained soldiers, the townspeople fought with whatever they could, throwing stones, boiling oil, and the like at the attackers. 400 Spanish died in the attack, with less than 10 defenders killed. Don Fadric then set up, not for a long siege, but for the engineering work that would take down the walls in a week or two and make the attack easier. The work of the Spanish miners, though, was continually thwarted by the town's defenders. William was not idle and sent a couple of relief forces, but neither of them could break the siege. He was able to send sleds of gunpowder and food over the frozen Harlem Lake under the cover of fog, along with some reinforcements. At the end of January, another assault was ordered, 
this one in the middle of the night. The Spanish breached the wall, which was lightly defended, and the citizens were roused by alarm bells. As the attackers made their way in through the breach, they learned that another, stronger wall had been built behind it in secret. They were met there by a hail of gunfire, and then the outer wall was blown up by the defenders. Another 300 Spanish lay dead, the rest fled back to camp, and the second attack ended. As Don Fadrique realized his assault might not work here, he had to contend with that greatest enemy of armies, disease and hunger. This, coupled with the cold, made it miserable for the Spanish, not to mention more deadly than either attack on the city itself had been. Fadrique wanted to abandon the siege, but dear old dad told him if he couldn't take Harlem, he shouldn't plan on coming home. William begged his brother Louis, now in France, as well as allies in Germany and England, to help him save the city. But he wasn't able to get a relief force. Still, he was able to occasionally get ships across the no longer frozen lake to give the city supplies. But at the end of May, the Count of Basu, a Spanish loyalist from Haino, and the man who Philip had called the Stadtholder of Holland, led a fleet of a hundred ships against a Dutch fleet on the lake. He captured about 20 rebel ships in a rout, and the rest were forced to flee. This was a disaster for Harlem. They sent word via carrier pigeon that they only had a few more weeks of food. Nothing could be done. On July 1st, they asked for terms. None were given. With no soldiers to relieve them, and a citizen army that had valiantly tried anyway but was routed, William sent word to take whatever terms they could get. They surrendered in mid-July, after seven months. The garrison, except for the German mercenaries, was all executed. Some of the leading citizens were as well, and a heavy ransom had to be paid by the city. But while the city was taken, and it was a defeat for the Dutch, it was in many ways a defeat for the Spanish as well. At least 20,000 soldiers were needed. It took seven months. Over 2,000 Spanish were dead. Some say it was more like 10,000 against a city with just a few thousand soldiers. It gave the Dutch heart that the Spanish really could be fought, and it gave the Spanish pause about how much this counter-rebellion would ultimately cost them. Don Federico sought to continue the capture of cities. After getting funds to pay his nearly rebellious troops in Harlem, he brought his army up the peninsula of North Holland to the next town, Alkmaar. The town, including the garrison, probably numbered around two or 3,000 people. The Spanish sent 10,000 or more to take the town. No quarter was to be given, according to Alba, who was disappointed that his relative kindness to Harlem didn't result in more surrendered cities. The defenders sent word out that they would hold the Spanish off as long as they could, but the only way they'd survive was to flood the land. In mid-September, Fadrique began the assault. Twelve hours of cannonade was followed by an attempt to storm the walls. The citizens again fought with the soldiers side by side, and that included women and children running ammunition to the men at the walls. After three attacks, the assault was aborted. The next day had another attack, and the defenders, more fishermen than soldiers, again repulsed it without heavy casualties. The Spanish could mount no more offensives, not because of strategy, but because the soldiers would no longer do it. A few of the region's dikes had been open, but major flooding hadn't occurred, and the Spanish remained entrenched. 
William sent word that the city only needed to hold out a bit longer and he'd flood the whole land. But he didn't need to. Don Fedrick had heard about William's plan and decided he wasn't sticking around to sacrifice 10,000 soldiers to the incoming sea. He lifted the siege on October 8th and left. It was the first time since the start of the conflict a city had survived a siege, and it was thanks to water, or at least the threat of water, and the city's fierce defenders. Soon after this battle, the loyalist Count Basu, who had taken Lake Harlem, sailed some of his fleet into the Zyder Zee. William's forces had essentially blockaded Amsterdam, and Basu was trying to break the blockade. In October, a battle ensued, and eventually five Spanish ships were taken, while the rest fled, and the Count of Basu was captured. William quickly communicated that Basu would be treated the same as Marnix, Lord of St. Aldegon, that eloquent speaker and close ally of the prince who had been captured only a few weeks earlier. How he survived that long is a mystery to me, but this tactic kept Alba from killing Marnix. All the while, preparations had been made for the Duke of Alba to leave the provinces. He had been begging to be relieved of the miserable duty of fighting against inferior forces. Sure, there was honor in crushing heretics, but he'd done that for a while now. He had already suppressed a revolt and a half there. His military successes were real, if somewhat impermanent. But his name was too hated there to advance the situation politically. Alba was tired. He was continuously without proper funds to keep his army on the field, and he knew forces in Madrid were conspiring against him. He begged over and over to be relieved of duty, and he finally was. In November of 1573, Don Luis de Requesens arrived in the Netherlands to relieve Alba. There was an exchange of courtesies in Brussels, and the proper oaths were taken, but Alba didn't stick around much longer. Before the end of the year, he had left the Low Countries, never to return. Alba arrived in Madrid and was welcomed back to the king's inner circle, but his rivals in court continued to work against him. Probably through them, a case against Don Fadrique was reopened, in which he had promised to marry a noblewoman and then had abandoned her. Alba apparently had some hand in the cover-up, and so both were imprisoned. But, when the king of Portugal died in 1580 without any heirs, Philip had a pretty solid claim to the throne. He decided to press this claim by sending an army in, and he still had the world's best general, Alba, at his disposal. Philip sent the duke in at the head of his army, and Alba won a decisive victory against a rival claimant to the throne. A personal union was created where Philip became the king of Portugal, although it technically wasn't incorporated into Spain. Alba finished his career as the viceroy of Portugal, once again ruling for the Spanish, although in territory not as unwelcoming as his previous assignment. Two years later, he became ill, and in December of 1582, at the age of 75, Don Fernando Alvarez de Toledo, the Duke of Alba, died. He was the leading general of his day, the instigator of the Blood Council, the man who condemned to death the Count of Horn, and the almost completely loyal Count Egmont, as well as countless others. He succeeded in tamping down the Reformation in much of the Netherlands to a quiet murmur in his time there, but he also helped create a national rebellion driven by his acts of tyranny, which led to a complete distrust of the Spanish. He both crushed the rebellion in the Low Countries and then fueled further resistance when the opportunity came for it. And that is where we will return to the Netherlands next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>